Philippians chapter 1. Well, Lord willing, today um, we are going to embark on a new journey through the book of Philippians. Lord willing, we'll do a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Philippians. So going from the first verse through, and Lord willing, we will learn the great message of the book of Philippians and a number of amazing truths from this book. Um, In the first place, just a brief defense of a verse-by-verse method. First, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tell us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means every single word in this book has been breathed out by God. And then the rest of that verse tells us that every Scripture is profitable. So there's not one verse in this book That's not profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction, for reproof, all of that. Whether it is what we are to believe about God or what God requires of us, every single word is important. The second thing is that 1 Timothy 4, verse 13 gives us a pattern of verse-by-verse exposition. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 13, Till I come... Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And it seems that the pattern there is read, explain, apply. This is not the only method of preaching by any means, but a verse-by-verse exposition gives us the opportunity to look at every verse, to explain, read, and or read, explain, and apply the text in their context. Now, this is not just the practice of going through technically and saying exactly what it means, but pulling out the truth, letting the Bible speak, if you will, but applying it to our lives. So with that introduction, we turn then to the book of Philippians. When Paul wrote the book of Philippians, he wrote from a Roman prison. I'm sure you know that and are aware of that, along with a number of other epistles he wrote. Um, The book of Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. They were all written from a Roman prison. But at this particular time, when Paul wrote this book to the church at Philippi, he was actually facing possible death, and actually a violent death. The occasion of the writing of this epistle was a visit from a man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a dispatch from the church at Philippi. He must have been quite the man, to be honest, because He traveled a long way. And he traveled just to do one thing, to bring a gift to the Apostle Paul. If you remember, the Apostle Paul used to work for his money. And if he couldn't work, he was preaching. And he was being cared for by the churches for his preaching. A man ought to be taken care of for preaching, right? As the Apostle Paul makes clear. But in prison, he couldn't do any of that. He had nothing. And so this church in Philippi had it on their hearts to send a gift to the Apostle Paul. And they dispatched Epaphroditus. He traveled all the way from Philippi, which was a city in the region of Macedonia, to Rome. This would have been a distance equivalent to the modern day trip between New York and Chicago. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a plane. He traveled this probably on Roman roads. 
This was love in shoe leather. A man who loved his brother so much that he was willing to go and travel all the way from Philippi, from Philippi to Rome just to deliver a gift. This gift you can see outlined for us in chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Keep in mind that Philippi was a poor church. They didn't have a lot of money. They were ones facing persecution. You can see that they were facing persecution. When you look at chapter 1, verse 29, when Paul says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer. They were suffering. They were a suffering church. A church that was in great need. And yet out of their abundance, which is why Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 4, But my God shall supply all your need. That's in the context of giving. When you don't have a lot to give. And Paul says, God will supply your need. God will take care of you if you give out of your, your lack for the good of the church. You see, these people gave Paul a gift because they loved Paul. They loved him. In Acts 16, we have the description of the forming of the church at Philippi. Remember Paul and Silas? They went to Philippi. Philippi was a place full of heathens. And when they got there, they, they saw the first convert, um, Lydia. Remember, she was by a river and she was converted. The Lord opened her heart. Then you had a demon-possessed woman or a woman possessed with a spirit of divination. She was making a lot of money for the people that were taking care of her. And they were very upset when Paul um, gave her the gospel and she was converted. And so they told the authorities and everything. The authorities put them in prison. Then you remember the Philippian jailer was saved. And then his whole household was saved. Those famous words, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they were. They were saved. And the whole reason why Paul went to Philippi was because there was one night a vision that appeared to him of a man of Macedonia calling him to come. And this is really an amazing thing. And just briefly... Paul tried to go to Asia, the Spirit forbade him. He tried to go to Bithynia, the Spirit said no. And then a man stood up in the night and said, Paul, come over and help us. Isn't that amazing? We need to be aware of the Holy Spirit's forbidding as well as his leading to where we should go. Not only where we should go, but where we should not go. And if Paul would have gone to Asia and disobeyed the Lord, he would have never had seen the conversions in Philippi. There would be no church at Philippi and there would be no letter written to the Philippians and you would not have it in your Bible. Not that any of that could happen because God is sovereign. But when he left this church, he left people that had been converted from heathen darkness to the light and glory of Jesus People that were worshiping the emperor to worshiping Jesus Christ. A woman who was full of a spirit of divination. Now she's full of the spirit of God. And these people loved Paul. And he's the one that brought us the gospel. He's the one that brought us the good news of Jesus and how he frees those that are in bondage to sin. And he showed us how that God sent his son to die for sinners and we trusted him and we're saved and we're free from our sin and they loved Paul. And that's why the church wrote this, or excuse me, 
gave this gift to Epaphroditus to bring to the Apostle Paul at Rome. But then what is the cause of the writing of this letter? The cause of the writing of this letter. Why did Paul write a letter? So Epaphroditus came. He gave him a gift. But why did Paul write to Philippi? Well, there are really three reasons which seem to stick out in this book. The first is he wrote to express his gratitude for the gift the Philippians had sent to him. That's no doubt the case. Throughout Philippians, you'll find him thanking God for the Philippians, thanking God for and praising God for what they have done for him. You find that especially in chapter 4. Certainly that makes a great deal of sense. It would only have been appropriate for Paul to write a letter of thanks and gratitude. But there's more than that in this letter. Paul also wrote to exhort the church to unity. You find this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 14. He wrote them, you find this in chapter 3, this issue, or chapter 4, excuse me, of Yodius and Syntyche, that they be of the same mind of the Lord. So he had two people in Philippi that weren't getting along. You find in chapter 2, he exhorts them, let this mind be in you, don't look on your own things, be of one accord, be of one mind. So we draw from that that there is an issue of disunity in the church at Philippi. And Paul was writing to exhort them to unity. He also is writing to make them beware of the enemies of the cross. In chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, he tells them that there are many that are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. And he's telling the Philippians, be careful of false teachers. Be careful of those that are enemies of the cross. And no doubt, the way Paul knew about these issues was because when Epaphroditus got there, he brought Paul news of what was going on at the church at Philippi. And so Paul wrote for those two reasons. But the third reason, and perhaps the preeminent one, is that Paul also loved the Philippians. And he was worried about their concern for him. And so he writes to tell them of the joy that he has in prison, with nothing, knowing that people are preaching the gospel to subvert him and his authority. And he so loved the Philippians that the Apostle Paul from prison has a burden to write to them to comfort them because they were worried about him. And so the theme of this letter really becomes joy in Christ. If we could call anything a theme in this book, I think it would be joy in Christ. And this, it's not that this letter is just mentioning joy. It's suffused with joy. Joy, the, the word joy is used and rejoice 16 times in this letter. But it's not the prevalence of joy. It's the preeminence of joy in the letter. Joy is the preeminent thing. This is what designates it as its theme. In Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. And if there's anything he wanted the Philippians to do, it was to rejoice in the Lord, in Christ. One commentator said that the letter could be summed up as saying, I rejoice, you rejoice. But what is joy? What is joy? Now, I have time this morning to deal with what joy is in its fullness 
But suffice it to say this, the definition, the significance of joy is massive. It's huge. Joy is the pulse beat of Christianity. It is the deep longing and craving of the soul satisfied in a glimpse of Christ. It is, as one person said, the white flag over the castle because Christ is there. And it is not dependent upon circumstance or happenings like happiness happenings, not dependent upon circumstances. Joy is a deep experience that only the child of God knows as he meditates on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll leave it there. But this letter begins with an introduction. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1 are the introduction. In New Testament times, letters began with a salutation, which was threefold. First, the writer was mentioned. Second, the ones addressed were mentioned. And third, there were greetings. Sometimes there is a fourth aspect, which was a wish. And Paul follows this same pattern in Philippians, but he makes it distinctively Christian. He doesn't just add a wish. He has a prayer. He doesn't just give greetings. He says, grace be unto you. Although it's the same formula, it's different. And this morning, I want us to consider the salutation. The salutation is found in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The salutation is important for our consideration because there is really nothing in the introduction, excuse me, there's really nothing in the letter that is not foreshadowed by the introduction. And to really understand the letter itself, we have to begin with understanding the introduction. And the introduction to the introduction is the salutation. And it's extremely important that we understand the salutation because it describes for us the spiritual posture, the heart attitude of the Apostle Paul as from a prison, he writes this letter. We need to ask this question. What was Paul's heart attitude as he wrote this letter? What should your and my heart attitude be before we communicate in any form? Whether it's texting speaking, whether it's writing, what should our spiritual attitude be before we speak or we write in any way? Husbands speaking to wives, wives and husbands, children, to parents, workers to their boss, Christians to another Christian. What should our heart attitude be before we ever write, before we ever speak? What should it be? And Paul, we see, has a heart prepared. To write. And so this morning, consider with me components of a man prepared to write. Components of a man prepared to write. The first thing that we see here is that the man prepared to write must be a man who acts in the capacity of a servant of Christ. He must be a man that acts in the capacity of a servant for Christ. We see this right here. Paul and Timotheus, the servants 
of Jesus Christ. The servants. He calls himself a servant. But will you note the plural usage? Servants. Now before we deal with what it means to be a servant, we have to see that Paul places himself alongside of Timothy. He says, I am a servant alongside Timothy. Now, is Timothy the author of this book? Or is Paul the author of this book? No, Paul's the author of this book. And we know this because of the first person singular that's used throughout the book. You'll look at verse 8, I long after you all. Verse 9, I pray. Paul is no doubt the author. So why is Timothy named? Well, in the first place, Timothy was instrumental in bringing the gospel to the Philippians. You can see this in Acts 16, 11 through 40. In the second place, he was going to be sent to them again. We find this in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 20. Paul writes, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, or Timotheus, the Greek name, shortly unto you. But the third reason is perhaps the most significant. He was probably the penman who wrote this letter. Romans 16.22 describes Tertius as the penman of Paul. It's very possible that Timothy was the one who actually wrote the letter. Paul then spoke it and Timothy dictated it. So it seems that that would be the reason why Timothy is used. But certainly it is an amazing thing that Paul places Timothy alongside of him as a servant. Other places in Scripture, Paul refers to himself as an apostle, but not here. He refers to himself as a servant alongside Timothy. The apostles no greater than Timothy. Timothy may be his son of the faith. He may be the one that he's teaching. But Paul says, I am just a servant with Timothy. I'm nothing more. And that's amazing. And that's something that pastors and preachers need to remember. That we are no greater than anyone else. That we are just servants alongside of Timothy's. And that must be remembered. You see Paul's humility here. But then we see this phrase, servants of Jesus Christ. If there was one phrase that described you this morning, what would that phrase be? If I asked you, what defines your life? What controls your life? What colors everything, shapes everything, flavors everything in your life? What would it be? What would you designate yourself as? If I said, if you could just in one phrase describe you, what would you be? Well, for Paul and Timothy, it was this, a servant of Jesus Christ. Nothing more. Nothing less. And remember, Paul was speaking this in the context of a city where the emperor was worshipped. And in prison, if he would have just given in to the emperor, he would have been set free. And he says, no, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul could have enjoyed the pleasures of sin. No, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. The one thing that defined Paul was that he was a servant of Christ. And it's amazing to note that James in James 1 verse 1 calls himself a servant. 
Peter in 2 Peter 1 verse 1 calls himself a servant of Christ. Jude in verse 1 calls himself a servant of Christ. What does this mean? Well, perhaps the force of the word is missed by the translation servant. It's not that it's a bad translation. It's just that we don't live in the same day. We don't understand what this word would mean. For Gentiles who are reading this Greek word translated servant, there is only one meaning that came across. Slave. Slave. Be sure that in the Gentiles' mind, they understood that this meant slave. You see, in their day, ancient slaves were bought with a price, they were owned, and they were completely consecrated to the service of their masters. This has nothing to do with the slavery that was in American history that was a racial slavery. No, this was a completely different kind of slavery. A slavery of a man to a household and nothing to do with race. It was like a form of, of servant, but a, but a stronger idea of servant, a slave. So what was Paul saying here? Paul was saying, listen, I am bought with a price. I have been bought with the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul said, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 18-19, through 19, You were not redeemed or purchased with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but by what? The precious blood of Christ. Paul was bought. He was bought. It wasn't money that was laid down. It was the blood of the Lamb of God that was laid down for his soul. And that blood was shed for your soul. You have been purchased. And therefore the consequence of that is second, Paul was owned. You, I, Paul, have no rights. We have been owned. Jesus has shed his blood and he owns you and he owns me. He owns us for eternity. Nothing can take us from the hands of Jesus because his blood has been shed. His blood has infinite value and worth and he owns us. We're his treasured possession. But that also means that third, we are to be completely consecrated to him. Because you are blood-bought. Because you are owned. He is your master. He is my master. He was Paul's master. Paul says, listen, I'm a servant. I'm a slave. My, the, the, the life that God give, has given me has been written off as a servant of Jesus. My rights are done. My tastes, I don't care about. My dreams, forget them. My aspirations, Goodbye. My ambitions, they're all for one thing, that Jesus Christ might be honored because I'm a slave. Are you a slave to Jesus? Do you and I view ourselves as slaves to Christ? It's like Exodus 21 verses 1 through 6, the story of the servant. He didn't want to go free in the seventh year. He says, listen, I love my master. My wife, my children, I will not go free. And they would bore his ear through with an awl 
and he would be forever the servant of his master. And that's what happened when we got saved. Jesus said, If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If any man love mother or brother or father or sister more than me, he's not worthy. We have become servants of Jesus. Does the fact of your slavery to Christ influence how you communicate with your brethren? See, this is where Paul began. Listen, before he writes, he is acting as a servant. He's saying, listen, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. As I write this epistle, I am writing as a slave of Christ. That is going to shape this epistle. That is going to control what I say. That is going to dictate where I go. I'm not writing to defend me. I'm not writing to promote me. I'm writing as a slave of Jesus Christ. We have to ask ourselves, when we text, when we speak, is what we are saying dictated by our slavery to Jesus? Or is what we are saying self-promoting? What we are saying self-inflating? What we are saying tearing down a brother? Does what we say, what we communicate, can it be said to be in the service of Christ? That's the first thing, the first component of a man prepared to write. Then the second component is this. A man who views his brethren as they are in Christ. A man who views his brethren as they are in Christ. Note Paul's language. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. This is who he's writing to. Note that he calls them all the saints. He's saying, listen, I'm not just writing to the mature Christians, to the immature Christians, to the bishops, to the deacons. I'm writing to all the saints. And this is Paul's heart throughout this book. If you look at verse 4, he says, always in every prayer of mine for you all. If you look at verse 8, he says, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all. All. Paul's saying, listen, I'm praying for all of you. I'm longing for all of you. There wasn't one believer in Paul's mind who he said, I don't long for him. I don't long for her. I don't pray for him. I don't pray for her. He prayed for all. He longed for all. He wrote to all. And our hearts should be for all. All in the body of Christ. All in a church. Every single one that we long for and we pray for. Not one forgotten. Not one, um, reg- not, not one that we look at and think to ourselves, well, I see them a little less than others. But then I want you to notice this, and I'm going to go a little bit, a little bit aside from the point here about a man who is viewing his brethren as they are in Christ because we need to look at this little phrase, with the bishops and deacons. So Paul says, with the bishops and deacons. Now, this is a very important phrase. You may think this is not an important phrase, but it's a very important phrase. There are three things that we learn from this phrase. The first is that there are only two offices in the church, bishops and deacons. There's no one else Paul mentions. Bishops 
and deacons. This goes against the Episcopalian scheme. This goes against the Roman Catholic one. This goes against the Eastern Orthodox schemes. There is not a pope like Rome. There is not an archbishop like Anglicans. No, there's not a patriarch like the Orthodox. There are bishops and deacons. That is the only office mentioned. Only offices mentioned. There are no others. Bishops and deacons alone. But then we have to ask ourselves, what's a bishop? I mean, do we have bishops in the Free Presbyterian Church? Who's a bishop then? Because I don't know of a bishop. Or do you know of a bishop? I do know of a bishop. I know of a bishop in this church. What is a bishop? A bishop is an elder. It's the same thing. And I want to prove to you that fact from Scripture. The word bishop is simply the word episkopos, translated. Bishop is, or episkopos, is just the verb from which we take the meaning to visit in the sense of looking after or caring for someone. Bishop is just a different description of the office of an elder. So bishop means this is looking at an elder in his capacity of overseeing and caring for the body. An elder is looking at the same position in his capacity as being a man with experience and knowledge and wisdom. But the term bishop is just another description for the office of an elder. And I want you to see this in Scripture if you turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, we read this. And, my, and from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So here's Paul giving his charge to the elders of Ephesus. Now note that. He called the elders, right? The elders of the church. Well, look at verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. That's the same word for bishop. To feed the flock of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So the same word, he says, you are elders. And then in verse 28, he says, you are episkopos or bishops. The same office. You also see this same thing in Titus. If you look with me at Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle Paul writes this. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain what? Elders in every city. But then look what he says in verse 6. If any be blameless, this is the elders, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless. Episcopos, same as an elder. A bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry. This is the same, well, it's a similar list to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is what? The requirements for an elder. A bishop is an elder. The second thing I want us to note also from this little phrase with the bishops and deacons is that it's in the plural. That God's design for a church is that there be multiple bishops or elders and multiple deacons. This, this immediately distinguishes um, a Presbyterian church from, from some other forms where you may have one elder or one pastor and then multiple deacons. But if you notice here, 
Paul says, with the bishops. Plural. There's to be a plurality of elders. Not, not just one, but many. A plurality of elders. Um, one commentator said this, named Fee. He said, No evidence exists for a single leader as the head of the local assembly in the Pauline churches. As he has read the New Testament and studied it, he says, the Pauline churches were led by a plurality of elders, not just one, a plurality. There are many elders. And the pastor is just one of the elders. He may be a teaching elder, which gives him a different function, but he's not above the other elders. All of the elders are pastors. All of the elders are overseers. All of the elders are shepherds, and they're worthy of honor. It's the way the Bible describes it. And so we see this plurality of elders. Just a quick note, it's interesting that a plurality of elders, it began in the Old Testament. Look at Joshua 24, verse 31. It was practiced in the Jewish community. Um, there, were, there was a multiple elder um, structure in the days of the New Testament church, and that was brought in as, as well to the Jewish churches that reform. Third, and very quickly, every saint is considered with the bishops and deacons. It does not say under the bishops and deacons. It says with the bishops and deacons. Believers are to be working and laboring in the same body, although with different functions alongside the bishops and, uh, and deacons, alongside the elders and deacons. They're not below them. They're just in a different function. There's a certain respect that's to be given to the elder and the deacon that may be different from that given to a, a lay person, but they're all a part of the same body alongside with the elders and the deacons. But then also see this. A saint is never considered in the New Testament outside of a local church. Somebody meet out there. I don't need to go to church, right? I don't need to go to church. I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be a part of a church. I can just worship on my own. That is just simply unbiblical. The saints are always with the bishops and deacons. Always. There's never a maverick saint. Ever. He's always considered alongside the elders and the deacons. And this gets into the issue even of membership of a church. If one is tech, in a technical sense, not underneath the auspice of an elder. He's not technically underneath the shepherding of an elder. He's not technically with the bishops and the deacons. Although this is sometimes a difficult thing to speak about because you have those that attend a church that are basically under that, but technically, technically they're not. But certainly it is unbiblical for someone to say, I'm a maverick Christian, I don't need to be underneath an elder, I don't need to be a part of a church, I can just go on my merry way, that is absolutely unbiblical. And the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian like that. But then we have to move back to the point. Paul was a man who viewed the brethren as they were in Christ. And this is extremely important. The word he calls them he uses, is saints. This is simply the word holy. Saints in Christ Jesus. You could say, the holy people of God. Saints. The word holy has many different meanings. It can mean morally holy. It can mean holy as set apart unto sacred use. 
And the word saint for God's people began in the Old Testament. It is a term charged with the idea of covenant. God entered into a unique and special relationship with His people through covenant. And we see in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6 that God calls His people a holy nation, a saint, a holy nation. And this idea we see throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 16 verse 3, but to the saints that are in the earth, Psalm 34, verse 9, O fear the Lord, ye his saints. The idea of saint, of a holy one, of a called out one, of a one that is sacred because he has been set apart as a treasured possession of God in Christ has been something that has been known since the Old Testament. God's covenant people were set apart in the covenant at Sinai. And we, in a very special sense, have been entered into the new covenant and we have been set apart in Christ they were also set apart in Christ. Everything Paul is saying here is with reference to their relationship to Jesus Christ. Saints in Christ. You might look at people this morning in this room, you might look at me, you might look at other Christians you know, and the last word you'd ever use for them is saint. I can think of other words that we might use, but it's probably not appropriate to use, right? That, that might come into our mind. And, and that's not right. It's not right. God's people are saints. And brother, sister, no matter how filthy you feel today, no matter, no matter what you have done, you are a saint. You're a saint in Christ. You're not a saint in and of yourself, but you're a saint in Christ Jesus. And by the way... Um, I think this hits hard. The error preached by the Roman Catholic Church. A saint is somebody that's on a nice, uh, nice window. A saint is somebody that we offer prayers to. No. A saint is a Christian. All the saints in Philippi. Not somebody who's a little bit more, a little bit better, who's performed a lot of miracles and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and has been sainted by the Pope. No. He is a Christian. A Christian is a saint. You're a saint. I'm a saint. We're all saints who are Christians. And what does Paul mean by saint? There are a number of different things, I think, that are thought of here. There are saints in the sense that they have been made holy in heart. That's true. There are saints in the sense that they are righteous before God. But I think preeminently what Paul is thinking of here is that they are viewed in Christ as the objects of God's undivided love and affection in covenant with God through Christ and in union with Him. That they are God's treasured possession. There is no way any human being with the vocabulary that we are being given can begin to describe the degree at which God loves His people. And you are saints you are set apart as a treasured possession, as the apple of his eye, deeply loved and treasured and valued by God. And before you ever say anything to any Christian, I want us to think, is this befitting of a saint? And am I looking at them as a saint? Hey, before, before somebody says, before you slander another believer, before you cut down another believer... You're saying that about God's treasured possession. 
You're saying that about God's undivided object of affection. Before you say something with a believer and cause them to sin, you're causing one of God's saints to sin. Some Christians think it's, 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 it's not a big deal. We think sometimes it's not a big deal. We'll just go and do something fun and me and another Christian will sin together. You are taking God's treasured possession and you are dragging them through the mud of sin. That's, that's about the worst thing that could possibly be done. One writer said that the only thing worse than sin is the sin of causing another to sin. And another child of God, a saint of God to sin. This is a terrible thing. We need to keep in our minds and hearts that these people are the saints of God. And this should control how we speak, how we communicate what we do. And this conviction was deeply rooted in the heart of Paul before he ever wrote this letter. But then, last, the components of a man prepared to write, finally, a man who is prepared to write must be a man who has a Christ-like desire for the church's good. Paul says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to what we could call the salutation proper, in the end of the salutation, we really see the desire of Paul opened up, his heart unveiled. What did Paul want as a result of this letter? What did he want to see in the Philippian church? Grace and peace. Now grace comes first because peace is the result of grace. Peace is the result of grace. What is grace? Somebody said grace is the sum of God's activity towards his creatures. It's all undeserved. William Hendrickson wrote, God's unmerited favor in action is his grace. You are totally undeserving. There's nothing about you that deserves grace or it would not be grace. But Paul is saying, grace be unto you. God's undes un un your unmerited, God's undeserved giving of, your, of, of sovereign love and mercy in action is grace. He's pouring out the benefits of redemption that are undeserved. The benefits of all that Christ has purchased, undeserved. Grace be unto you. Peace is the sum of the benefits. What is peace? Well, peace, shalom, was something deeply rooted in the Old Testament. It meant wholeness, prosperity. It had the idea shalom would cover the earth, peace would cover the earth at the last day when the Lord reigns and His righteousness and His glory covers the face of the earth and there is true shalom, true peace. But peace is experienced in our lives as Christians when we receive by grace the benefits of what Christ has purchased for us. Meekness, humility, faith, love, gentleness, goodness, peace, the fruit of the Spirit. Experiencing the fruit of the Spirit is having peace unto you. Knowing 
deep experiences with God, the benefits of redemption. Knowing the sanctifying work of the word in your heart and life is knowing the benefits of redemption. Having your eye, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened to know the power of redemption, to know the glory of God is the benefit of redemption. And I could go on and on and on. All the promises of scripture, all the benefits Paul wanted by grace to be given to the Philippians by what he said. And that was his heart. Before we leave this, note that it's from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, you see the deity of Christ. Grace and peace doesn't just come from God the Father, but from God the Son. And in a very special way, God the Son administers these things from his place at the right hand of the Father. And you see that Jesus must be God. He cannot give grace and peace if he's not God. He is God. There's a lot of theology behind that, but suffice it to say this, that God the Father and God the Son are both active, not only in saving, but in sanctifying, and also the Holy Spirit. And so Paul knows this as he writes, and he's saying, listen, I want, I'm praying that God the Father, that God the Son would give grace and peace to the Philippians through what I'm writing. And as we end this morning, I just want to ask you this. What is the end result of how you act towards another believer? Have, you, have we thought about what will happen after I say this? I'm about to say something. I do this all the time at home with, with my wife. I really want to say something. I know it could make things hard for her, but I say it anyways. But what do I want for the person I'm speaking to? I want to minister grace. I want to build them up in the faith. I want grace to flow to them and peace to be brought to them through the things I say, through the things I text, through the things I write. That has got to be our burden in communicating with God's people. Well, we pray that this will be a, something that will help us to bring glory to the Lord Jesus this week. Let's end with a word of prayer. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Thank You for the power of the Word of God in every word. We pray that You would impress on every one of our hearts this truth. Guide the words we say. Give us a sense of of our servanthood to Jesus. Give us a sense of the treasure which your saints are. And Lord, give us a Christ-like burden and desire for the good of your people. Bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.